Well, ladies and gentlemen, you are about to become under the influence of an award-winning lifelong advertising man. He hosts, creates his own radio show podcast called Under the Influence, and it's based on looking at the world through a marketer's eyes, an ad man's eyes. He began his career as a copy chief for a radio station where he discovered, and now I'm quoting, that with meticulous planning and attention to detail, you can fall flat on your face. And now he has written a book about all of this. Terry O'Reilly, ladies and gentlemen, my biggest mistake, epic fails and silver linings. It is such a great book because we all learn from failure. So true. So true. Hello, Pamela. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. And and I just have to tell people, for those who actually are regular viewers or listeners to your uh, podcast and radio show, um, you're in the Airstream where you record and create all of this product. I am. It's a 1969 Airstream trailer restored and converted to be a recording studio. Just fabulous. I'm, I'm so, so jealous. All right, let's jump in from the back cover of this latest book of yours. People will always make mistakes when you feel like you may have lost your credibility, your livelihood, or even your sanity. It might be destiny preparing you for what you've asked for all along. Just remember to ask one question. What is the hidden gift? Right. Is this personal experience speaking there, Mr. O'Reilly? Well, I did. When I look back on my career, Pamela, I was lucky enough not to make any catastrophic career decisions, which that book is based on, by the way. I tried to look for people who made catastrophic decisions, and it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to them. But when I look back on my career, early on, when I was a young writer in my 20s, I did have a job where the creative director at the agency I worked for hated all my work. He hated everything. I always say that he booed my car in the parking lot. Like he never allowed one piece of creativity to to get through. And it was very hard on me. And I was there for about two years. And when I got out of that place into my next job, I really thought I had wasted two very important years of my career But skip ahead about seven years or so when I started my own company, I realized that the best, one of the best pieces of learning I had was those two years because I learned how not to do it. Yeah. I I learned how to encourage creativity and support my staff and, and take calculated risks all based on watching somebody never do that. Yeah. So what I thought was my biggest mistake ended up being my best mistake. I I just, I agree a thousand percent getting fired has turned out to be the best thing, you know, led me to start my, my own company, all of those things. So, so I get it totally. The people you talk about in the book and, and I want to get to some of the larger issues, um, but this book has fun stories. I mean, Denny Doherty, I know as well for the mamas and papas are dead and, uh, and, and, Bill Maher, Dixie Chicks, Ellen DeGeneres, people that you worked with like Ellen, people who made mistakes, but were able to pull it back. What's your favorite out of all of those? Ooh, good question. (laughs) Um, One of the very first chapter is about Jaws and Steven Spielberg. And I love that story because, and I put it first because it really sums up the the core of the book. And, And that story very briefly, of course, is that 
Spielberg was a 27-year-old director looking for his first big break, and he gets, he lands Jaws, the film, which is huge. <laughs> because he's young and he's full of bravado, he wants to shoot it in the ocean with a, a lot, with a full-size shark, an animatronic shark. So he has three of them built because he needs three of them to pull this off. He tests it in freshwater tanks in Hollywood. It looks like it's work, all working. He goes out to Martha's Vineyard puts them in the water and they sink and malfunction immediately. And the mistake he made, of course, was he never tested them in salt water, in salt water, right? which I don't think a lot of people know. Everybody knows the sharks didn't work, but I don't think everybody knows why. Yeah. But that ended up being a hidden gift because as he panicked in his hotel room one night with no working shark is all his crew, all his cast, you know, there with no working script, he asked himself that really great question, which was what would Hitchcock do? Right. And when he reframed the problem like that, he came up with the solution that what we can't see is the most terrifying thing of all. So he quickly rewrote the script so we don't see the shark. And if you think about it, he Im he Im uh, implied the shark. So you see the dorsal fin and the tail going through the water. Right. So you get a sense of how big it is or that famous scene where the shark pulls those yellow um, barrels. You see how powerful it is. And then, of course, John Williams' fantastic score where... Oh, yes. You know, you hear the, the, you know, the music come in and then the music would recede, but you'd never see the shark. And the most amazing <laughs> thing, I think, Pamela, is we only see the full length shark for four minutes in that film. It but is you incredible. You've seen it the whole time, right? People have lifelong fears of these creatures that they've never seen. <laughs> I know. And, uh, and that was, I think, a great example of a catastrophic mistake turning into the best thing that ever happened. And even Spielberg says that the malfunctioning shark added probably $175 million to the box office. Yeah. Amazing. A lot of the stories that you recount in the book are, and, and I think it just reflects our modern times uh, when culture and fame meet um, political correctness or politics. So the Dixie Chicks uh, on foreign soil criticize George Bush and say they're ashamed he comes from Texas. Ellen DeGeneres struggling with whether she allows her character to come out on a television show before she comes out as uh, as gay and the, the fights with the networks and, and all the rest of it. Um, even Brian Williams, to a certain extent, a very well-known NBC anchor who kind of pads his resume a little bit, just beefs up the war stories. Uh, there just seems to be a lot of that. It, that's when people hit the wall or, or have the problem. Yeah, it's very true. And I think the key thing, the, the connective tissue between even those three people you mentioned, Pamela, is that they muscled through the problem. Yeah. I think a lot of people run away when they have a catastrophic or humiliating thing happen to them. They tend to give up on their pursuits and they, and they disappear and hope for a quiet life somewhere else. But those people in that book and, the, and you know, Brian Williams and Ellen DeGeneres, et cetera, they kind of muscled through it. They owned up. I mean, in Ellen's, she, she calls it a mistake. That was her words, not mine. Yeah. You know, Brian did pat his resume, et cetera, but they muscled through it and got out the other side. And, you know, Ellen ended up with the best thing that ever happened to her, which was her talk show. And, Brian Williams, although he recently left his uh, MSNBC show, I thought he found his his groove there. He Absolutely. could be funny and, and erudite and, and keep four conversations going at a time, which was much more fun for him than just reading a teleprompter every evening at six o'clock. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I think they found their hidden gift. And and I love the Rob Lowe story because I'm a big fan. And there he is back on, you know, doing his own television show again after all these crises. And, and, and one of those typical stories, he got into a lot of trouble when he was young and inexperienced and did drugs and drank too much and almost hit bottom. And it scared the hell out of him. It did scare the hell out of him. And comedy saved his career was really when Hollywood stopped calling him after that sex tape came out. It was one of the first scandalous celebrity sex tapes. Right. Even pre videotape machines. Like it went back even predated that. And uh, Hollywood stopped calling him Pamela's and he sat there, which is every actor's nightmare is no calls. And then um, Lorne Michaels calls him and says, come and host Saturday Night Live. And Rob knew at that moment that he was going to be made fun of, that that yeah. was Lorne Michaels' intent. And everybody told him not to do it. His management, his, his uh, agent said, don't do it. He did it anyway. And it salvaged his career because Lorne Michaels met him. Mike Myers met him. They put him in a couple of funny movies. And then he found out he was very, had a very humorous uh, you know, persona he could take yeah. on. And it, it, it was a Lazarus moment for him. Yeah, exactly. Know a little bit about that. Uh, <laughs> the other issue that, uh, well, there's so many, I mean, we could talk for four days here, but the, uh, there's so many things that ring true today. Now I've been listening to your show for a long time. So there's, there's the black pearl story, which I really like because to me, it rings true from for politics um, it's a something from nothing story, right. uh, you, you know, and, and it just tell people a little bit about that. I have to think, I have to throw my mind back to that episode now. So black pearls were not a valuable commodity back then. They weren't right. white pearls. White pearls were what everybody wanted. So this person who thought, thought he could actually create a market around black pearls. And what he did was, he gave them to a big jeweler who then put them in the window with other fine jewelry. So in other words, he was almost borrowing the prestige from other jewelry to, to put onto the black pearls to, to make them feel valuable and desirable. And by doing that, I'm, I'm really, you know, giving you the 25 words. Uh, yeah, essay. no, no. Cause it's a great story, but yeah, yeah but he, he made them so valuable that everybody wanted them. And he started in Hollywood. And when the, when actors and actresses started wearing black pearls, they became a valuable commodity, but they were literally worthless right. prior to the marketing strategy of, you know, uh, treating them with, uh, with a lot of attention, putting them in the window with other valuable and uh, jewelry and, and I always say that prestige has to be borrowed. You can't kind of create prestige. You, something has to le- lend you its prestige. And the, and the other the other pearls and other diamonds, et cetera, did that. And that's like, it's one of the things, of course, I tend to see the world through that prism, but but that's what happens in the world of politics with endorsement. Um, you know, Justin Trudeau was in a bit of trouble in the last election. Barack Obama puts out a tweet and it kind of changes the game. Yeah, he was. It was really. You're right. It's the same principle at work there, isn't it? That yeah. You're, you're lent. Not maybe it wasn't prestige in, in Obama's case, but it was just an endorsement. But yeah, the very same principle at work. You talk a lot about um, the priceless to the worthless, and vice versa. If you go and steal a famous painting, you the the downside is it's worth bazillions of dollars, but you can't sell it to anybody. Can't sell it. 
<laughs> and so you're stuck with looking at it yourself. But that principle is is pretty key in terms of creativity in our culture, not just in movies or fame, but in creating products. You you tell these stories about um, uh, value by accident, the rubber yeah. band, Fanta, Velveeta cheese, charcoal yeah. briquettes. Pick a little story and explain to our listeners. Well, yeah. So um, charcoal briquettes. So Ford, <laughs> Henry Ford, uh, he was quite the entrepreneur when you dig into his history, by the way. So he he needed wood as part of building his Model T's. And he bought a huge, like thousands of acres of land, I think it was somewhere in Michigan, so he could harvest his own wood. And he created a, a sawmill, like he wanted, he even wanted to control rubber, like he bought a rubber plantation down in South America, because he wanted to control every aspect of his supply chain. When he went to visit the sawmill, he noticed that there was a lot of wood on the ground, like in other words, the ends that they would cut off to make the, the longer lengths of wood. And he thought there was there was money to be made out of the out of the castaway thing. So he really um, created charcoal out of all those various pieces, and it became uh, I think it was Kingsford Charcoal was the name of the brand. And he literally yeah. made millions of dollars off of the off of the refuse, off of the garbage that the the wood uh, you know that they they didn't need. And, and they uh, associated it with the vehicle because with the vehicle right. you could you could go for a drive, you could get out in the country and have a barbecue. So that was such a key part of the strategy was to link yeah. it to automobiles. It's it's almost it's like Michelin, you know, it's the same kind of story, Pamela, where the uh, Michelin needed people to drive so they would wear their tires out because <laughs> at, at that time people very few people had cars and they weren't really using them that much. There weren't that many roads. So what the Michelin company did was create the Michelin guide to restaurants. So people would actually drive to the restaurants and, uh, and use their tires. So it was really <laughs> just a, a, a strategy to make people get in their cars. The, the people that you cite, I mean, these, the, and Ikea is the same kind of story. I mean, he was, he started out as an entrepreneur at the age of seven, but he was cheap. I mean, he was building furniture out of, you know, a little leftover pieces of wood, et cetera. Um, the, the same with Fanta, uh, the orange drink, which didn't start at that. It was using, you know, crushed and mushed apples and old yeah. fruit. It was just uh, in wartime. So yeah. you didn't want to waste anything. Uh, what what is in their mind? Like what separates the creative mind from the rest of us who go, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. So hard to answer that question. <laughs> it's, um, you know, Malcolm Gladwell has this interesting theory that I subscribe to. See, I'm an, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 29, so I can really understand this. The conventional wisdom is that entrepreneurs have this high tolerance for risk. Mm -hmm. What Malcolm Gladwell says is it's not that is that every entrepreneur feels in their bones that they're on to a sure thing. <laughs> and when I started my company, I felt the same way too. I felt there was a big chunk of the market not being ser serviced that I could get in there, elbow my way in and, and, and give a better level of, of service. And, uh, and then the other aspect to that, I guess, is that entrepreneurs look at the world in a different way. There's something about them where they, Henry Ford can look on the ground, see scrap and see a, a profit potential. 
or the Michelin brothers knowing that if they could just get people in cars, that they could sell more tires and give them a reason to drive. Like there's that curiosity, I think, is probably the foremost uh, characteristic of great entrepreneurs is they're just endlessly curious about the world. Because it's so easy to dismiss it as greed. You know, there was something they could get for nothing and sell. And, and of course, we do know entrepreneurs like that. Yeah. But, but there is something else that moves them. And, and that, that desire to win, to be different, to be at the front of the line, and not necessarily in an egotistical way, to just yeah. break It's ground. ingenuity. It's ingenuity, too. Yeah. It's just, I mean... Every entrepreneur looks for opportunity. I mean, it's really, that's the name of the game. And you have to, you have to keep evolving too as an entrepreneur. I mean, even that little uh, evolution that Henry Ford made to get into the charcoal business, mm-hmm. that little left turn, left turn at Albuquerque, you know, that he made right there. Uh, <laughs> I think that is just ingenuity. It's just looking for opportunity. We can't have a discussion about marketing and advertising and influence uh, in the age of COVID without talking about just that, as you have. With everyone on Zoom, people were suddenly seeing their own faces front and center on Zoom screens. As a rule, we don't see ourselves when conversing with others. Zoom has changed all that. And a lot of people didn't like what they saw. Droopy faces, lines, and wrinkles. Many people were more bothered by those lines on video than in real life. That phenomenon triggered a boom in plastic surgery. Injectable procedures like Botox and fillers are up 90%. So the story is is priceless, Terry, that every in all times of crisis, lipstick, people want to doll themselves up, but... When you have to spend your life on Zoom, all of a sudden you want to rearrange the bits on the face. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, I'm sure that surprised even you. It did surprise me. When the whole world went to Zoom, I mean, we all just adapted to that, but there was a lot of implications for that. So, you know, when you're behind a mask, that had implications where people weren't, you know, literally, you know, buying a lot of cosmetic products suddenly. Uh, It's I think my whole industry is really still grappling with COVID and what to do about it. Because, I mean, if someone says to you, they have a crystal ball and knows, knows how this is all going to turn out, there's no way they can because it changes every single week. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think there's a lot of change that are still that's still going to happen in the marketing world because of COVID. There's no doubt about it. Even the way stores handle their customers in this era, you know, where masks suddenly come down, but should I put my mask on to go in? How many people do you let into your establishment? You know, the poor restaurants hanging on by their fingernails. There's a lot going on. The the news of the day and and the speed, I mean, we don't need to talk about the impact of of internet and social media. We kind of know that in our bones. But when you have such um, massive, catastrophic, major events happening so quickly, and I'm thinking, of course, of Ukraine. And, and the way that has impacted people and how Zelensky, and I, and I don't want to be trite about this at all, but that man has been a genius at connecting with people so that we hear him and get his story. He is, he is brilliant at that. And, and I mean, even when I, was it on the Oscars he made an appeal? 
Did you make yes. an appearance? Did I write about that? I mean, or, even, uh, it was even, the um, the Grammys. Yeah, the Grammys. Sorry, you're yeah. right. You are. Even to choose the Grammys, yeah, as a communication vehicle was uh, astounding to me. Yeah, he really. One of his gifts is connecting. Maybe it's because he was an actor, and actors know how to do that. And I, and I don't mean that facetiously because I've no. worked with actors my whole career. They have this this gift for doing that, and I think he is leveraging that because he has to. Yeah. When you look at him, I mean, he's under siege and, and, and none of the big countries can really help him because it would escalate. It's a crazy situation yeah. to be in. And he is, I think he's handling it pretty wonderfully that he's really, he's got all of our hearts, doesn't he? he is, he's Yeah, that's the point. There hearts. are just individuals who can rise to the moment. Yeah. And, and he's doing that. Now, I think the rest of us all feel hopeless and helpless because- we all want more to be done and we, and we don't know um, really oh. we could do, although, you know, we could send more in, but as you say, uh, great risk with that. Yeah. You know, the other thing recently, of course, was watching Boris Johnson go and visit. I mean, here's this yeah. kind of um, in, in, in political context in Britain, he's kind of a buffoon, you know, a bit of a clown, right. but he, he gets, you know, even with his suit and tie walking down the street, it was a, huge connector. Yeah. I was surprised to see that, to tell you the truth. I was surprised any leader would risk that trip right now. Right. And uh, yeah, that surprised me about Boris. That was an interesting move on his behalf. Yeah. And I think spoke for a lot of people, which is we have to put our our money where our mouth is, right? Right. And take some of the chances. Um, So other things that are going on like that, you know, the slap, um, at the Oscars, uh, obviously that's going to affect a career. When we were talking a little bit about, you know, um, turning things around, what what does Will Smith have to do? That's a very interesting thing we all witnessed there. You know, this right. weekend, Pamela, I was um, I was boiling some maple syrup at a friend's place not far from oh, here. Oh my goodness! Yeah, How Canadian of you! I know it was the <laughs> ultimate Canadian moment. And comedian Ron James was there with us, and I've known yep. Ron for many years. We've done many commercials together. But I asked Ron that question. I said, yeah. "Will, are you afraid now? Like, yeah. are you afraid to be in a club, say something, you know, mildly offensive or whatever, and have somebody actually do a Will Smith on you?" And right. he said he wasn't concerned about that but i've read even uh kathy griffin said on twitter not long ago she's she's afraid of that yeah it's funny how moments like that can change the zeitgeist can open up the door to something that you know you would never think in a million years could happen and a lot of people will walk through that door and say i'm going to slap a comedian right it's uh it's it's like you know in you don't want to get into the trump story but trump opened up a lot of doors too for uh behavior right yeah and saying things that, I mean, has, has, well, I mean, has probably turned social media um, more negative more quickly than it probably was going anyway, but he, he may put a, the gas I, on. And, you know, I always say too, Pamela, which is a surprising thing, but I've said it often in my show that whoever's in the White House dictates the tone of marketing. Yeah. And that's an interesting thing because you don't ever really connect those two. But if you look back... You know, there was no humor in the Bush years at all. Very conservative marketing. If you look at the Super Bowl ads in, during the Bush years, very conservative. There was humor during the Clinton years. Just that was just the tone. Yeah. It, there was humor during the Obama years in marketing. You sort of see that that tone filter down. 
And then in the Trump years, it was a, it was a whole different thing going on where actual brands had to state which side of the fence they were on. And, and that's something that brands never did historically for 100 years is really state your political affiliation for the fear that you're going to lose the other 50%. But they were forced to sort of uh, say, here's where we stand. So the White House dictates marketing. It's an interesting phenomenon. People are marching for some very serious reasons and standing up for their beliefs more than ever today. Many viewers were outraged that Pepsi would co-op meaningful protests as a commercial theme. Many couldn't believe Pepsi would cast Kendall Jenner in a protest storyline, saying she had zero credibility. Nor could people actually believe Pepsi would cast its own product in a role where it saves the day against a possible clash with police. The link between protesting and the product was non-existent. Pepsi yanked the spot within hours. Social media rained down on the soda company with a vengeance. Everything about the commercial seemed tone-deaf. Add to that the fact it was released on the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King, prompting his daughter Bernice to tweet a photo of her father being pushed back by police, adding, if only daddy would have known about the power of Pepsi. So we've just taken a look, heard you here on on the Pepsi ad uh, being tone deaf, I think, to kind of, we are now living in that woke world where you have to be, uh, I I don't know, anticipatory doesn't even come close. You have to think through how 15 different communities and groups may or may not respond to this and what kind of sway they'll have. Uh, Advertising, marketing in the woke world is really tricky territory. It's so tricky, so tricky right now. I, and I get it. I get that heat too on my show sometimes. I, I bet. Recently, I said, uh, I, t- I posted a photo of in the Airstream here, in the Airstream. Mm-hmm. And I had my daughter's dog just sitting beside me, just watching me record a show all day. And I, and my, I just tweeted a photo of him. And I said, uh, getting a lot of comments from the peanut gallery. And I got, I got pushback on that because apparently peanut gallery was, is a racist term. And I had no idea. I, I have no idea. Yeah, I had no idea about that. So you, there's a, there, there's a lot of learning to be had in all of us, I think. There's no doubt about that. You were talking about sort of editing the past and, and the future in one of your programs. You used the Golden Girls um, story. So if, for people who are too young, uh, you know, uh, three aging women and and their mother, one of their mothers, uh, live together in, in a house. And the son of one of them comes home with his uh, black girlfriend and right. greeted at the door by two of these women who have got mud facial scrubs on, right. um, which was probably hysterical at the time. But it, it, it now it can't go forward. It can't even be in the archives. Yeah, because they made some funny comments, you know, just in that moment of meeting a, a a fiance who was black. They weren't anticipating a black person to walk through the door. Then they had right. mud packs on, and the, you know they had some repartee there. Um, and then that episode was pulled. Like you cannot find that episode now in any reruns of the Golden Girls. It's literally had to have been vanquished from the archive. What what do you make of that? I mean, we're going through it in the larger sense too of taking down statues or renaming buildings or whatever it is. 
It is our past. It is our history. It's a time and place, which in fact, all ads are, all television programs are. They represent, you know, we're not, we're not soaking our nails in palm olive dish soap anymore either, right? Right. Uh, so, but it, it does give us a window into that world. Well, you know, um, advertising really is... Um, catching the, the pop culture in, in amber. It really, uh, even Marshall McLuhan said, it's the cave art of our time. He had that great line. And it's really yeah. is that when you look back at adver- advertising really reflects, that's really what we do is reflect what's going on. We rarely lead the parade. We kind of put our finger in the wind and then, you know, jump on that bandwagon. And uh, I think, you know, it's an interesting thing that even if our archives, so I'm, this is my 17th year on CBC. So we have a pretty vast archive that we've made available to our listeners, but I didn't go in and change anything. I literally just said, this is from season, you know, four four in 2007. And I want people to know that that was the reflection of the time. I didn't want to go back in and, and start changing the whole archive. I just wanted them to know it's timestamped. That's the thing. I mean, you're talking about presidents, you know, in the, in the years after 9-11, everybody was struggling. Comedians were struggling. When is too soon? What can we say? Right. It, 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 changed the, it changed the stage on which we were all uh, doing our jobs or literally for some performing. Yeah, that's so true. And then Giuliani, of all people, had the funniest line of all on Saturday Night Live. Do you remember when they finally came back? after 9-11, the first show, yeah. and Lauren Michaels said at the beginning, can we be funny? And yeah. Giuliani said, why start now? Which is <laughs> such a funny line from you know Giuliani of all people, but it was literally <laughs> that issue. Should Is it even appropriate to be funny? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And that's, I think, the things that we all struggle with, you know, because here we are and, you know, and we watch the Oscars and the Grammys and everybody else try to find that line when they're all dressed up in their outfits and drinking champagne and celebrating movies like first world issues uh, while we're in that context. So it's always a, it's always a struggle. It is always a struggle. It's a, a, and I think the 21st century more than ever, I just, when you look at just the, the 22 year history we've had in this century, it's Mm -hmm. one knockout punch after another. Yeah. It really, it really is even, even having a business thrive going through 9-11, SARS, the Great Recession, COVID. I mean, it's just very difficult time. Yeah, it's actually a miracle that we're still standing. It does say something about the the resilience. The the ads that catch your eyes, and and I don't see this anymore, but I know we used to do a piece on this on Canada AM and in other parts of my broadcasting life, which is, the best ads out of Europe, which yeah. were so fundamentally different than the ads that you see in North America. What is that sensibility difference? You know, the, you're, you're talking about the Cannes reels. So every yeah. year in, in Cannes, France, the, the whole advertising industry comes to compete. And out of that becomes comes a reel of the best ads in the world, which I always loved. Even when I was in university, Pamela, yeah. I would go to the groaning board in Toronto just to sit there and watch that reel every <laughs> year. Well, there's different sensibility in different countries. There's no doubt about it. It's, you know, in France, nudity and advertising, you know, c'est la vie. Yeah, and, not a problem. Uh, 
and the the deep humor of UK advertising is just they look at advertising in a different way there it's not they don't pander to the lowest common denominator they really assume an intelligence on most of the UK television work and therefore the audiences kind of like it they kind of welcome it so yeah. there's that um when I was judging Ken, I was I was a judge there in 2005, which is a very interesting experience. So you, we I was judging radio. So for three days, it was like uh, headphones on and listening to ads from around the world. <clears throat> First, you'd hear them in their native language, and then you would right. hear it in English, so you could understand right. what was going on. The interesting thing to me was beyond sensitivities like uh, using profanity or a little bit of nudity or whatever it might be. Every country basically did the same kind of advertising. I could even hear a German ad and get the beats of it and then just confirm it with the English. Just It just had the husband, wife, you know, the, the monologue announcer, like Madison Avenue has really permeated the world, the world with the exception of Japan. Japan's ads were like three minutes long, not 30 <laughs> seconds long. And they were languid and there'd be just running water for 30 seconds and then three words and more running. Like the, <laughs> there's no that urgency, that exclamation, that forest of exclamation marks we live with in advertising does not exist in Japan. So that's the one place in the world where advertising is so different. So, I mean, that's not an attention span thing because they have as much technology as we do. That's an interesting thing too. You know, everybody talks about the goldfish uh, attention span that we have and that you know, all advertising has to be five seconds long, six seconds, you know, and I've never bought that. I really believe that if you can tell a great story, people will listen. I mean, movies aren't really all have been two hours long since the beginning of celluloid. I mean, it's, yeah. it really hasn't changed. So I, I think it's a cop out. I think if you can create a great, even my show, Pamela, I mean, look, my show is about advertising. And I always kid yeah. about this, that it's a show on a network with no advertising, <laughs> you know, on a network, people flee to, to avoid advertising. Correct. And it's a show about advertising and it, it was downloaded 7 million times last year. Yeah. And I say, why is that? And I really think the answer to that is, is just because I tell stories. Yeah. I think it's, it's the, it's the, stru- it's, it's not my ability. It's just, it's the concept of storytelling that I think works on any level and people will, will actually sit down for 27 minutes and listen to a show about advertising if the stories are good. And then the flip side of that, which you talk about is that short, short, sharp sentence that makes all the difference in the world. Um, and you can explain these a little bit, but don't mess with Texas. And right. then the one that is in all of our minds, it's maybe our agent stage, but the, the the cracked egg saying, here's your brain. And then the egg is cracked and put it in the frying pan. And it's, and it's, that's your brain on drugs. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it, it was so powerful and it was a nanosecond. Well, as with anything, the key is, is simplicity. Yeah. The best, the best advertising in the world is the simplest advertising in the world. I don't mean simplistic. I mean, that the idea yeah. is not complicated. And that, uh, you know, that your brain will fry on drugs, that, that yeah. exact analogy was so powerful. Don't mess with Texas was such a great line. You know, I even tell in that story that when the agency presented that line to the um, to Texas, um, the Texas folks, they wanted to put please in front of it. Please don't mess with Texas. And the ad agency said, if you do that, you destroy the line yeah. and we won't even give it yeah. to you. Like, it's got to be don't mess with Texas. Yeah. And that line 
he, he, as he said too, he said, I could have said, don't litter, keep Texas clean, but don't mess with Texas. Just summed it up. And Texas really took that line on as almost like a state slogan. And it did. So it was, reflects yeah. their character, right? It's Yeah, it's the Republic of Texas. You know, it's yeah. um, they loved it. So the point being that you can have a, a simple idea in advertising is the best, but then a line, a simple line can do a lot of work, like a great slogan, a great tagline. Uh, I never thought I was good at writing great slogans, Pamela. I could, I could come up with interesting ideas. I never thought slogans were my, my strength because it's incredibly hard to come up with something that sums up a company or is as sticky as don't mess with Texas when you're only using five words or less. It, yeah. it, it is an art form. But to back to, to to full circle, it does tell the story because it does capture people's idea of themselves. And they were trying to deal with Texans who, you know, as you said, the, the you know, the babas that were throwing their beer cans <laughs> out of the, the windows. And all of a sudden, their toughness could be turned to a good purpose. And 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 they bought in. I mean, the, the rates of littering in Texas just plummeted. Just plummeted. And one of the smart things they did in that particular campaign was one of the first commercials they got two of the big Dallas Cowboy football players to deliver yeah. that line, which I think set the tone for that. Right. And everybody just immediately bought into it and loved it. Yeah. You um this the Super Bowl, which is supposed to be the be all and end all of modern advertising people spend bazillions of dollars uh on those ads and and they've changed they've really changed quite dramatically you were talking about the 2017 super bowl where the airbnb ad and a company called 84 lumber that nobody in the world had ever heard of right uh, <laughs> did these ads which were quite political, which were carrying a message. Those were the Trump years, right? Yeah. So both of those particular ads were commenting on Trump's immigration policy, the, the building of the wall. So Airbnb, um, their, you know, their core mission is, is strangers meeting strangers. Yeah. That's really what they're all about is, you know, you, you go and stay in someone's home that you've never met. It's that's their raison d'etre. And, and the same with 84 Lumber, which, you know, really I haven't heard of since, but they took yeah. a big chance by, you know, uh, creating a whole storyline of people trying to get through a wall and uh, a family trying to yeah, get through. Yeah, just tell that, create that image for those who didn't see it, because it was a, a mother and a young daughter, I think. Yeah. Trying to, they, they come up to the wall, but there's a door in it. That's right. So, the yeah, so they because it's a lumber place, they built a wooden door so they could right. actually get through the wall. It was just, it was symbolic, but powerful. I mean, it, it was the one of the most talked about ads on that Super Bowl. And that's what you want with the Super Bowl. You're spending, even the last Super Bowl, Pamela, I think it was $6.5 million for 30 seconds. Now, remember that the advertising itself costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Could be right. $750,000 for a, you know, you're spending almost another three quarters of a million on, on just the creative. So it's, it's a, it's a lot of money and you've got the biggest audience in the world. That's what you're paying for. You've got a hundred million people watching, which no other program delivers, but what you want at the end of the day is people talking about your brand and, and 84 lumber got that. Yeah. Let, let's end by, uh, by just talking for a moment about the influences on you and how you see that affect your life. 
I was very fortunate to attend a weekly master class in the use of sound effects many years ago. That tutorial was delivered courtesy of the Coyote and Roadrunner cartoons I watched as a kid. I don't think sound effects have ever been done better or with more humor. And that cartoon was created in the 1950s when technology was a tad more basic than it is now. I loved the ever-inventive Wiley Coyote and the contraptions he would order from the Acme Corporation, which, by the way, stood for a company that manufactures everything. Those contraptions gave animator genius Chuck Jones a smorgasbord of sound effects possibilities. When you hear those sound effects, it really is. I mean, talk about the visual imagery that comes from a simple sound, like a you can see somebody falling down the cliff, right? That, <clears throat> the Roadrunner and Cartoon and Bugs Bunny was a masterclass in sound <laughs> design. And I mean that. It was a, I sat there as a kid, you know, fascinated by that. And it has informed my whole career. I mean, as a, as a director of commercials, and I was really, uh, my production company was a sound company. I mean, when a, when a rock falls off a cliff, it makes no sound in reality. But because of the Roadrunner, you know you'll have to have that whistle. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it informed all of our collective uh, consciousness on what, what does something sound like. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were so creative with their sounds. I think Treg Brown was the name of the sound designer on all those Warner Brothers cartoons. And he was so inventive and so incredible and so funny. I mean, he could make a, a, a door open funny, just the sound of a door yeah. opening be funny. So that, that informed my uh, point of view. So when I was... You know, I say to my sound engineer, find me a great door slam. And he'd give me one. I said, that's not funny. And he'd look at me like, how can a door slam be funny? Then we'd go through our sound. I go, that one's funny. That's and funny. I learned that from Roadrunner and the, and the Coyote cartoons. So you were kind of destined. Obviously, this is, I mean, I always think the things that happen in our youth shape us. And we, we don't know that it's taking us there until we get there and look back. But so often. true. <laughs> So true. I don't even know if I was even conscious of it until well into my career that when I was quoting right. my sound effect uh, requirements that I was really quoting Chuck Jones and all the great work he yeah. did. Isn't that he was great? So brilliant. So brilliant. It's such fun to talk with you. And, and I mean, I know you have so many uh, listeners on the, on the show and on the podcast under the influence because there's an endless supply of material. I mean, it, you know what people, People often ask me, uh, how do you come up with so many episode ideas? And I, I really literally have to say that's the easiest part of the show yeah, because my industry and the world at large, it just pumps out so much great material every day, every week, especially in the marketing world. If you look you know, around the world, uh, the toughest part of my show is research, but the easiest part is the episode theme. So just so much happening out there. Well, and it's so different now. I mean, the, the, the government in Ottawa has hired influencers now to go online and, and, and market their message. I mean, everybody's doing it. It's not just big companies selling stuff. It's so true. Every company is a media company now. Think yeah. about it. I mean, 
prior to social media, you had to buy time on a television station or a radio station or, or in a magazine. Now it's social media. Every company is a media company now, and every person could be a brand. It's, it's, it's a whole new uh, era. And, and, and we'll do that next time because I'm going to beg you to come back so we can talk some more about that. Lovely, lovely, lovely to have you on the show. It's great. Thanks, Pamela. I really enjoyed it. I'll, I'll come back anytime. Okay, so the latest book, because there are others, you'll look them up, is called My Biggest Mistake. And I think it it really speaks to people because we do learn uh, from our mistake, Epic Fails and Silver Linings, Terry O'Reilly. But please find on any podcast outlet anywhere under the influence, because it's just, it's a treat to listen to. And yes, there are sound effects. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Terry. Thanks, Pamela. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.